PhD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HD Insights Podcast. As always, I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communications, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group, and your host as we talk with the special people doing extraordinary things in the field of Huntington's disease research. The topic for this episode is physical therapy for HD patients, and our guests are Dr. Lori Quinn, Associate Professor in the Motor Learning Program, Department of Biobehavioral Studies, and Director of the Neurorehabilitation Research Lab at Teachers College, Columbia University, along with Dr. Nora Fritz, an Assistant Professor in the Physical Therapy Program, Department of Healthcare Sciences, and Department of Neurology at Wayne State University School of Medicine. We wanted to have Dr. Quinn and Dr. Fritz on the podcast for a couple of reasons. First, the topic of physical therapy for people with HD symptoms is a very important one, but doesn't always get the attention or publicity that drug therapies tend to garner. And the other reason is because they led a research team that has been working for the past few years on developing clinical guidelines for the use of physical therapy with HD patients. With funding provided by the Huntington Study Group, along with EHDN and the Griffin Foundation. Those guidelines have recently been accepted for publication by the journal Neurology, and we're excited to have them on the podcast to talk about it. So now, without further delay, here's our interview with Dr. Lori Quinn and Dr. Nora Fritz. Well, Dr. Quinn and Dr. Fritz, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the HD Insights Podcast. We're thrilled to have you today. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And so I, I want to kind of dive right into it because I know you're at um, the annual physical therapy conference right now, and I appreciate you taking time out of uh, your busy conference schedule to, to chat with us. But, you know, we want to talk about the, um, the guidelines uh, that your group has come up with for physical therapy for HD patients. So First of all, I guess, um, you know, uh, I guess I'll start with you, Dr. Quinn. What made you want to pursue this particular project? Yeah, well, I'll, I have to say we've been, something we've been thinking about for a really long time uh, is how can we sort of get the word out about the potential benefits of physical therapy for people with Huntington's disease? Um, because it's a relatively rare disease, it's difficult to do um, sort of large-scale clinical research projects in HD, um, but we have sort of over the past, I think 10 to maybe 15 years, I think made a lot of progress in um, the, you know, getting a range of uh, studies completed, um, both our groups and other groups internationally have, have, have done some really excellent work that have shown the benefits of exercise and physical therapy. And so I guess a few years ago now, probably almost four years ago, we, um, we sort of looked at the literature and thought it might be time to try to develop clinical guidelines. And so we, um, you know, we pulled together our group and we, you know, sort of scoured the literature and, and um, I think came up with, um, you know, sort of a really good approach to 
trying to document um, sort of an optimal, at least what the, what the literature is demonstrating right now um, about how we can use exercise and physical therapy to help people with HD. I think something that's also important to add is that you know Dr. Quinn and I are often approached by community therapists who are looking for tools and resources that they can use and apply with persons with Huntington's disease because they don't often see these patients, but when they do, they want to know what is the best way to treat these patients. So um, we've had the pleasure of working together for over 10 years, and that started with um, a really early, early version of clinical recommendations that was published in 2009 um, through a partnership with the European Huntington's Disease Network Physiotherapy Working Group. Um, and over the course of the last 10 years, we've sort of been refining some treatment-based classifications that help us classify individuals with HD, um, often by their primary impairments, and then understand how we can go about treating them. And so our this clinical practice guideline um, was a really exciting culmination of that work that we can apply these treatment-based classifications and also apply the best evidence. And so, Doctor Doctor Fritz, as far as uh, you know, the you know this being the culmination of you know many more years, kind of kind of working together, is that how did uh, you and Doctor Quinn first get um, paired up on this this particular initiative? So actually, I was a PhD student when we met for the first time, and um, two of my PhD advisors, who are also authors on this guideline, we attended a European Huntington's disease network meeting, um, and Lori was there, and she was at the time living in Europe and um, leading the physiotherapy working group and really had a, an amazing vision of how we could help um, clinicians to guide practice for people with HD. Um, and so we met at that meeting and I think we've been working together mm -hmm. consistently ever since. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and what about the rest of the team? So I know um, certainly there are the, the two of you that we're speaking with today, but uh, I know there are a number of uh, other key contributors that you had uh, on the working group that ultimately developed the guidelines. Who, who else, um, you know, played a key role for you? Yeah, so I'll just acknowledge the other authors. Um, so Deb Kegelmeyer and Ann Kluse are both at Ohio State University. Um, they were Nora's uh, PhD advisors. And again, we've been working with them for a number of years and they've been part of uh, obviously both HSG and also had joined the physiotherapy working group as part of the HDN. Um, uh, Ashwini Rao is at uh, Columbia. So he's actually an occupational therapist and I've worked closely with him for a long time. So he contributed to these. And Monica Bassa, who I worked with um, at Cardiff University when I was living in Europe. And she and I were co-lead facilitators for the European Huntington's Disease Network Physiotherapy Working Group. I do also want to acknowledge that sort of behind this was a whole uh, really group of other physical therapists and physiotherapists who um, supported us, read versions of this, um, contributed to the initial guidance document that Nora talked about, we published in 2009. Um, so there's a, a lot of physical therapists who are um, acknowledged, some of them by name in, in the document, but, but some in some of our other work, um, who've really been very supportive of this work. Um. I want to talk about, yeah, I want to dive in a little bit more into the, the guidelines and the recommendations um, from your, your research. Um, 
specifically, you know, some things that, that jumped out to me was, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, there's mentioned a, a few times of a, of a danced-based video game that, that seems to have aided in some specific improvements for folks. Uh, what other ways have you seen advances in technology kind of like uh, along those lines um, where technology is really driving improvements in PT techniques for HD patients? Well, um, I think that, so as far as an intervention goes, that's probably one of the few interventions that have really had a technology uh, base to it in terms of, of utilizing that for the intervention. There's certainly things like virtual reality and augmented reality that are being used in a lot of other diagnoses, but we haven't seen that pulled into, into HD very much, where I would say that we're using technology a lot is in the use of wearable technology to um, evaluate patients. And this is something that I think has application, not just for exercise and physical therapy trials and interventions, but also for pharmacological. And, you know, there's a lot of trials going on right now that are using wearables, but we've been using wearables for a number of years, both to look at movement analysis. So, so parameters of gait analysis, um, and, and Dr. Rao has done quite a lot of that work. We are doing a lot of work right now on balance assessments and importantly, looking at physical activities. So some of the studies we have ongoing right now are using physical activity monitors to quantify movement and, and quantify physical activity. So I wouldn't, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that right now technology is at the forefront of the interventions, but certainly at the assessments. Were there any results that uh, or outcomes during the course of this research that that surprised you that you you know that you weren't necessarily expecting uh, when you first went into it i would say um that we were a bit surprised to find um, almost no literature in the areas of secondary musculoskeletal and postural changes and end-stage care for persons with HD. Um, very little work has been done in that area and no randomized controlled trials of any sort, so no high-level evidence. Um, so this was a time where we really had to rely on the expertise of um, physiotherapists around the world and, and other healthcare providers for persons with HD. Um, and as part of our process, we actually ended up surveying uh, therapists and healthcare providers around the world. Um, we had hundreds of people respond to the survey. It was really encouraging, providing um, information about the way that they manage secondary postural, postural changes and end-stage care. Um, and so just from a, the perspective of the collaborative nature of um, researchers in the field of HD, it was a really exciting way to, to kind of um, learn about those areas and to set future directions for how we can um, improve what's in the literature. Yeah, and the, the other thing that I would just add to that is the thing I found surprising was uh, the lack of high-level evidence for balance um, training. Uh, balance is such a big problem with a lot of the patients that we see, and we one, don't have very good assessments for balance, and two, there's really just very few interventions that were solely focused on balance. There were exercise interventions that measured balance, but not so much really specifying um, interventions that, that could improve balance. And that's something that I really paid attention to and started to think about ways that we can design some trials looking at, at specifically balance and, and falls risk. 
And to, to springboard off of that, um, because of this, Dr. Quinn and I and a group of researchers have really sat down thinking about perhaps one of the reasons why it's been so challenging to look at balance and balance interventions is that we don't have a disease specific outcome tool looking at balance for HD. Um, so together we're partnering with several other institutions to study and develop an HD specific balance tool. That's one of the things we're working on right now. Do you, uh, do you find it to be more of a challenge to get, um, you know, interest in, you know, studies around physical therapy? Like, I, you know, I know obviously the, you know, the, the drug therapies get a lot of the, the media attention and the publicity. And so, you know, uh, patients or, or even providers may not necessarily think physical therapy is, is a, a route that can, can drive a lot of improvement. Did, did you find that through the course of the, your, uh, your research and investigations that there's kind of more of a prejudice towards other clinical trials, you know, drug type of critical, uh, clinical trials versus, um, you know, the, uh, the interest in doing the, the physical therapy work? Um, yeah, so we, I've been doing clinical trials in HD, um, yeah, probably, yeah, for over 10 years. And you, I mean, yes, most definitely. Um, I think there is uh, a, maybe a, a bias or prejudice towards um, pharmacological interventions. And I, you know, I'm the first one to completely under, understand that. I think what we have tried to do um, in when we have, have designed clinical trials and when we're choosing sites for clinical trials, we have a, a, a relatively large study going on right now. We've tried to choose those sites that um, maybe aren't the ones that are being chosen for drug trials um, and that have good therapy support that would be um, you know, able to con to conduct the research, but ultimately, I've felt that while you know, fun you know, funding is certainly difficult for everyone, and that's something that we've struggled with to try to get the proper funding to do the larger scale studies. Um, we have found an incredible amount of support um, through HSG, through EHDN, um, through a lot of the neurologists that we talk to. You know, people like Martha Nance who are incredibly supportive of the work. So. I think we get really empowered um, by that, and people are are generally really supportive. And you know, we're certainly, um, you know, understanding of the of the kind of bias towards towards pharmacological interventions. I think both Nora and I feel, and our and our group feels that, you know, we'd love to see physical therapy and exercise interventions really be pushed a little bit more to the forefront when we think about interventions, because when you think about diseases like Parkinson's disease. You know, it's a frontline intervention. You know, the first thing that doctors tell patients with Parkinson's disease, you know, when they when they get diagnosed to do is to exercise. There's hundreds of trials in Parkinson's disease, um, and they know that drug plus exercise has almost this synergistic effect, and the exercise can sort of address the issues that the that the drugs in Parkinson's disease can't. And and we are feeling really strongly that even you know, in, in Huntington's disease now and potentially in the future with, with new medications, that that still will, will be the case, that there's a really important role for physical therapy. 
The other thing I would add, I think it was um, the director of the NIH has this really wonderful quote that if um, exercise was a pill, it would be the most widely prescribed pill yeah. in the world. Um, everyone understands that exercise is beneficial and it is harder potentially than, than taking a pharmacologic, but this synergistic effect I think is really important for us to educate patients and families about there are no side effects of exercise. Um, it goes well with everything. And so <laughs> we always want to educate people that this is something that they could take control of in a disease where they might feel like they don't have a lot of control. Um, so they can control their exercise intake. And, and we feel that that's really important to empower our patients. Um, so that's one thing that we, we educate. Well, I guess the other thing too is, um, you know, with a, a trial in terms of um, physical therapy, it wouldn't probably necessarily exclude you from a, a pharmacological clinical trial, correct? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, so we have a study going on right now, PACEHD, uh, and we've had a couple of people who've entered into some of the ongoing clinical trials and they've had to drop out of our study. So the major issue on the part of the, the drug trials is that they don't want obviously anything else potentially interfering with that, that, that the patients are doing additionally, even if it's just doing some um, assessment. So on our end, we don't exclude people if they're in other clinical trials. We try to really have a very pragmatic approach. Um, but, but it is a bit difficult and it's something we, we have to think carefully about if we're gonna be continuing to do rehabilitation trials going forward with, with these large number of, of other trials. Can you talk about the PACE-HD trial for a minute? Um, the, you know, the, the size and scope, how long it's been going on for and um, you know, what the, the expected duration is for that? Sure, yeah. So the PACE-HD um, study was funded by the Gossweiler Foundation, which is a European, it's a Swiss-based um, organization. Um, the sponsor for the trial is Cardiff University, um, which I am affiliated with and worked at for a number of years. And uh, Monica Bassa and I are leading that study. It's a six-site study that's taking place over three countries. And we've enrolled 116 people with Huntington's disease. Um, half of the individuals who've come in are just doing a longitudinal evaluation. So they come in at two assessments at baseline and one year later, and we're measuring a whole range of physical activity, physical fitness, uh, and mobility measures. So we're sort of almost looking at natural progression over a year. And then the other half are part of a randomized control trial where we're doing a one-year physical therapy exercise intervention. Um, so half of the people get exercise and half of the people continue as usual. Um, so we are um, about three months away from the final um, uh, endpoint, which is the one-year follow-up for the trial. Um, we're putting together the baseline results right now, and we should have, uh, by the end of this year, the, the kind of full study results um, available. Oh, excellent. Um, I want to go back to something, and, and I apologize. I think, uh, Dr. Fritz, it may have been something that you mentioned, and I saw um, you know, uh, it being alluded to in the, the research on the guidelines is that um, you, know, you didn't see a lot happening with folks uh, more in late stage or end stage. And, and, and I want, typically in terms of physical therapy interventions, is it something that um, – HD patients aren't getting until um, they're well into showing symptoms? Is it something that they should be looking at, at, at 
earlier stages? Um, what, did, what did you find during the course of the project? So I can just start anecdotally and tell you that um, the majority of patients with HD do not receive their first or ever physical therapy evaluation until they begin showing overt motor symptoms, um, particularly when they start falling. And we would advocate that people should be referred to physical therapy upon diagnosis so that we can establish a wellness program and really um, focus on and emphasize physical activity and wellness throughout the disease course. Um, and so that we can sort of prevent some or at least delay some of the um, respiratory issues and the positioning issues and potentially secondary changes in um, in postural alignment and musculoskeletal conditions. So I would say, yes, I think that that is true. Most patients do not receive physical therapy until later in their disease. I think Dr. Quinn would, would second that. Yeah, we, we did a, um, a survey of, of physical therapists back in 2008, and that was one of the um, sort of overriding themes was that patients were not being referred early enough. And that often by the time that therapists would see patients, there was certainly things that could be done, but there was so much more that therapists felt could have been done, especially in the earlier stages. So we've been really pushing for earlier and earlier um, intervention. And, and we actually did a, a physical activity coaching study at um, Columbia, where I work, um, in individuals with pre-manifest and newly diagnosed, so really newly sort of motor diagnosed um, patients. And, and that was really beneficial, I think, for, for people. And it's a model that we use at the clinic and something that we, we really want to try to push forward a little bit with these guidelines because the, I, some of the overwhelming evidence is in aerobic exercise, which is something that people can do from, from the minute that they're diagnosed. And certainly in pre-manifest or prodromal is something that people can engage in, and it, and it, it might potentially affect the, the course of the disease. Is there, uh, did you find any evidence also, so there's certainly the aspect of physical therapists, um, you know, not having the, the background or the, the guidelines up to this point to rec you know, um, refer people to physical therapy um, early on. Is there resistance on the part of patients potentially, um, you know, maybe around the stigma of having PT, you know, maybe if you, you don't feel like you have the symptoms, it, did you encounter any of that kind of evidence? Um, I mean, I would say I didn't in our, in the clinic setting that, that we worked in because we really just tried to, to use a wellness approach sort of as Nora was, um, was mentioning. And, you know, we really just tried to talk to, to individuals about, there's so much benefit about exercise in general and almost using that as a coaching framework that it can be beneficial for everyone and, and look, it might even have this additive effect of having, you know, there's this concept of a neuroprotective effect that exercise might have a neuroprotective effect. And there's, there's some evidence in other uh, diseases that this is the case. And we don't really know that it's the case in HD, but, but kind of framing it in that way, I think was, was helpful. But I think you bring up an interesting point. I mean, there, there certainly could be that, that stigma. And, and, it, and it, I mean, we, 
definitely I didn't have, you know, everyone wasn't super keen to to sit with me. I can definitely tell you that there's definitely people who are like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. I, I don't need anything. Um, and I think we do need to think really carefully um, about that. One of the the things that I think is nice about being in a clinic setting is it's it's not always a full on physical therapy evaluation. Sometimes we just sit and have a quick chat with with patients and and that in and of itself can be be really powerful and motivating, especially if people don't want to go down the whole ro- road of, you know, physical therapy, you know, a whole a whole physical therapy program over a number of weeks. And right. um, yeah, there's a lot of barriers to that. One thing I'll add to that is that we did actually look at some qualitative data as part of the guidelines and. Um, really, the goal of that was to understand perceptions of patients and their families about exercise. Um, so this idea about where the exercise takes place didn't actually come up as a theme from any of these articles. But what we did learn was that being part of a group, so if the training is provided in a group setting, can actually be really helpful and that patients can gain uh, something from that social interaction and really it, it's helpful for building self-confidence and feelings of independence in addition to the motor benefits of improving balance or walking. Um, it also helps to improve just their overall outlook. So I thought that was really helpful. Um, and we also gathered from those articles that intensive training is acceptable to individuals. And so I think one of the, um, when we speak about biases, one of the things that might happen in a community therapist who's not regularly treating a patient with HD, they may find, they may under prescribe the intensity that for that patient, not realizing how intensive the therapy could be for a person with HD. And so that's one really major takeaway from the guidelines is that intensive aerobic training, uh, particularly in the early stages of the disease is not only acceptable, but beneficial. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I was curious and I, you know, just because I know there's there's often a mentality, uh, you know, with people that, you know, with a let's say a sports injury, for example, and you know, uh, not wanting to go to physical therapy just because you you know you feel, you can deal with it or it's not bad mm-hmm. enough, and what that ends up doing is just kind of delaying and making it harder for you to recover. And and I think you know, although you know uh, Huntington's is a is a long term disease, really you're you know you're trying to you know, repair those, those movement issues. And uh, yeah, I, was, I was really just kind of curious on that front. Yeah, I'll just say, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, this is maybe a, uh, a potentially a branding issue within physical therapy. Um, and, you know, we're here at, at a physical therapy conference and there's a lot of discussion about this, you know, is that, is that physical therapy is often thought of as people have these impairments or are very sick or have really significant problems, you know, activity problems. And, and, uh, but, but there's a whole push in physical therapy and we are really expert at, um, experts at, at wellness and, and there's a, there's push in Parkinson's disease and then a lot of other, especially degenerative diseases to, um, have physical therapists utilize their expertise to not just treat problems, but to help prevent some of these problems. And with Huntington's disease, we have a very well understood to some degree progression of the disease. We can all predict to large degree the balance of parents that are coming, the potential musculoskeletal problems that are coming down the road, the, the gait and, and, and postural problems. 
And if we can do some things early on to help prevent those and mitigate some of those problems, we're not going to completely prevent them, but sort of change the course of the progression and help head them off. Um, I think I think that's incredibly powerful. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. I'd like to piggyback on what you said about, uh, you know, about the approach for, of physical therapy for a HD patient versus, you know, kind of a, you know, any other setting. And re- can you kind of elaborate more, uh, uh, you know, maybe the general listener um, listening to the podcast right now thinks of uh, physical therapy as a, you know, a, a short-term intervention to fix a problem. Uh, you know, I hurt my shoulder, I go to physical therapy, in a few weeks it's fine. Um, but physical therapy for an HD patient or somebody with a, a long-term or, or chronic uh, issue, it, it's more than that. And I, I think for Huntington's disease patients, you know, what you're saying in your research is you, you have to customize it. It's not the same thing over and over. You're going to have to customize it as the disease progresses and changes course, correct? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you, know, you sort of nailed that. Um, and to be fair, this is something physical therapists are still working on. We're we're adapting to this. Um, it's sort of a new model of care. And there's just work really in the last five years that have been discussing this as as physical therapists sort of working across disease progression. Um, I think. Uh, I think I think for us, sort of, um, well, one of the things that we have done uh, at the in the PACE study, as an example, is it's a 12-month intervention, right? You don't see many physical therapists' <laughs> interventions that are 12 months long. So we are seeing people over the course of the year. We're seeing them for 18 sessions over that time period. So 18 sessions is about what it, most um, insurance companies. Uh, would would allow for for someone to get physical therapy in the course of a year it's actually below what would be typical um but kind of the idea is is instead of having a um you know eight sets you know uh, eight weeks twice a week rather do we not spread that out over the course of the year and help people manage their disease symptoms over a longer period of time and and that that's a shift in thinking for physical therapists but it's something that I think a, a lot of us who are working in neurodegenerative diseases really see a potential benefit of absolutely the other thing that that really does is build sort of a culture of wellness within that family so we think about HD as a, a disease of families if we can instill um, wellness as an important factor in one person, then that can potentially change the way other family members view their disease and how, or potential disease and how they manage their wellness. I think that could be critically important. Yeah, and, and health insurance, um, 
which you brought up is a, is a huge issue, um, you know, particularly here in in the United States. But um, in your experience, or you know, what you've seen, um, what what other obstacles should patients or or families be aware of uh, ahead of time in terms of health insurance coverage that they they may need to consider if they're looking at um, you know physical therapy intervention. Well, <laughs> that's a very challenging question. Um, as you mentioned, insurance is quite different in the U.S. than it is in other countries. Um, just by a way of an example, several of the studies that we reviewed as part of the guidelines that were included in the guidelines utilized um, a training program where individuals with HD came to a rehab center and stayed for three weeks at a time. Um, three times a year, I think. So nine weeks total every year of intensive training with physical and occupational therapists managed by a medical team. So when we think about ongoing care, the way that Dr. Quinn was mentioning it, that is taking it really to an extreme level that is something, we, a care model we would never see in the United States. Um, so just a very, a big difference in how how insurance is, is managed around the world. Um, but within the U.S., it's this is an ongoing battle that I think the advocacy groups of the American Physical Therapy Association are fighting um, to get ongoing and preventative care for degenerative diseases. So they, we have groups that are on Capitol Hill really um, advocating on behalf of the physical therapy profession with Medicare and Medicaid um, to, to get ongoing coverage for these patients so that they don't reach um, a limit on their insurance coverage throughout the year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it is a, it's a really challenging issue. And I think most people are able to get some level of physical therapy services. And we are certainly not you know, advocating that, you know, they should be seen by a physical therapist twice a week for the rest of their lives, right? I think we also need to be part of the solution and in being innovative about how we provide these these services. Um, and, I, and I think your initial question was what else do people need to be aware of, um, you know, in this regard? And I, I think it's that they, they you know, can can fight and sort of argue and 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 provide evidence for within their insurance companies uh, that that these services are are needed and therapists can really um, help with that. So um, I, I don't see that too much. I think a lot of the times it's more the difficulty of getting them in the door in the first place. And I'll I'm going to turn it on to something else, which is um, the the issue of of apathy. Um, and, and motivation, and this is something that 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 Nora has studied. Um, you know the the kind of difficulty that I think patients have to get motivated to to engage in exercise and to be proactive um, is something that we really don't understand as well as we should. And we're um, really trying to develop strategies now that we know that exercise is beneficial. Trying to de develop disease specific strategies to help people overcome apathy and to engage in exercise because exercise is only good if you actually can get off the couch and, and do it for, for any of us. Um, and for people with HD, they're just, they've got many more hurdles that are really related to their, their disease. There's some inherent apathy issues, which um, I think are, are really contributing. 
So one thing that I always tell my patients when um, I refer them to physical therapy is that it's really important for them to think about at least two things that they would like to be better at doing. So what are two things that are really important to them that they would like to do better? Um, maybe that's climbing their stairs at home. Maybe that is um, walking a certain distance, whatever the case might be. Um, because really what it comes down to is making therapy important and relevant to that particular individual makes it more motivating. Um, and the other thing that we, we found through the review of this literature and looking at some of the qualitative literature is that having a really supportive caregiver um, or supportive support person in your life makes you more successful at doing exercise and maintaining exercise long-term and can actually help to overcome that issue of apathy. So finding that support person is just critical. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, I was going to ask you about the caregiver role because that's been a common theme with uh, just about everybody I've spoken with on these podcasts is, you know, having the right care team is, is crucial and having caregivers that, you know, can keep you on track and can carry over, um, you know, uh, that work into the home is is crucial. Um, what in terms of you know uh, physical therapy work um, you know is it is it critical that your caregiver be able to perform the same things or do you do you think it's the caregiver just really needs to be as as much of a, a coach and a cheerleader as somebody who can you know help perform those same types of tasks I would say that it is very um individual um what and and as you know and i've heard on some of the podcasts right there's a lot of complexity to family um dynamics so i've had just in some experiences with um individual patients where the you know it's the the caregiver who's the one really pushing the patient saying come on you should do this and they're sometimes that works but sometimes that just makes them sort of shut down initially so it is this um it's a it's a sort of complex I think interaction and I, we really take it you know patient by patient and family by family and thinking about what's going to work optimally. Sometimes it's not the 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 family member. It's a friend. Um, it's engaging something you know somebody else. Children often work really well. We had mm -hmm. in our in one of our studies um, we had a, a one of the patient's daughters who was 16. Uh, she was sort of her her exercise partner. Um, and even sort of Nora's point about like group versus individual, um, there definitely is a benefit to, to group classes, but some people definitely don't don't like that either. Um, so, so doing sort of individual, we have some exercise videos that we've put out, really creating a wide range of, of different options. And similarly, having a, a, a wide range of options for um, a support structure for exercise. And, and that's, that's really what you need. Um, going, going through the recommendations that you put out, there's a, you know, there's a couple things that I wanted to circle back to and, and have you, you know, speak to a little bit more. Um, you know, when people think physical therapy, I think they naturally think, you know, stretching your arms, doing walking practices, uh, you know, working on gait. Um, but one of the other things that you looked at specifically was, was breathing and I, I don't breathing exercises. And I don't think that people generally would make that connection or that association. Um, how, you know, how important is that for HD patients? 
Yeah, so I would say um, we we don't have, that was not one of the strongest um, levels of recommendation that we have because there's only a few studies that have looked at it, um, which is un unfortunate. And I hope it's an area that's going to continue to build because we know from very early on some of just the cross-sectional work that's been done is that there are real limitations in, um, in, in capacity um, and in lung function. And this has such tremendous effects in terms of endurance and walking and functional abilities. Um, we don't really know to the degree that specific um, uh, you know, inspiratory and expiratory muscle training can really have um, a significant effect, but there's some preliminary evidence to, to suggest that it is, but it really, there's um, a lot of linkage between respiratory function and functional abilities that I, I think we need to be paying a, a lot more attention to. I will say that respiratory training in general and, and care of respiratory function uh, by physiotherapists is much more common in Europe than it yeah. is in the United States. And both of the, uh, the, the primary studies that we um, gathered information from for the, for the guidelines came out of Europe. Um, but in addition to functional limitations that occur with airway clearance, it, we also have secondary issues that can occur like things like pneumonias and um, just cough, ability to cough and swallow and so all of that can play into um, declines in, in persons with HD. So you can kind of see how respiratory function could be really important in a whole host of domains. The other, you know, the majority of the recommendations that you came out of the research with um, relate to um, encouraging larger scale clinical trials to examine these areas. Uh, you talked about the PACE HD trial. Are there any other trials that people should know about or that you're aware of that are kind of in the design phase or maybe will be coming soon that they should watch for or where they can go to get more information potentially about those? Yeah, so um, there's two studies that I'm aware of. So there was an NIH-funded study, um, I believe, out of Iowa that there should be results coming soon that was done in pre-manifest individuals, and I believe they did imaging with that. So that, and that I believe is registered on uh, clinicaltrials.gov. And so there should be some results coming from that soon. And I believe also in Australia, they are working on uh, a larger scale clinical trial. Um, I, you know, there's definitely, and we're constantly working on trying to, to, to think about the next um, uh, kinds of exercise studies that we're gonna be doing. And I think uh, a, a big push for us is trying to think about mechanisms of, of exercise. Um, so kind of that by, by what means is, is exercise and aerobic exercise in particular potentially exerting its effect on disease progression. And I think that's a, a really important next step, I think, for us. And, um, uh, and I think the other thing is, um, is some of the balance work that was done. There's, I don't know if you want to talk about um, the group that's doing some of that balance work, Megan. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's like a um, the BFIT program. Oh yes, I'm so sorry. No, it's um, good. <laughs> so yes, so there are there are some efforts to develop more individualized programs that could be um, sort of. I guess maybe the way I would want to say it is a 
um, framework for a program that could be individualized to many different patients. And so there was some nice work that came out of Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky, um, called the BeFit program um, that really focused on different areas, including balance and fitness. Um, and they, they developed this really nice framework of how this could be applied to persons with HD, um, but it has yet to undergo kind of a rigorous clinical trial, to yeah. my knowledge. Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Quinn and Dr. Fritz, uh, again, I really appreciate you being on. I, I guess there's one last question I, I'd, I'd like to ask of, of each of you, and I, you know, Dr. Quinn, uh, I'll start with you. In terms of the research that you did for these these guidelines, what is the the top thing, the 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 single biggest takeaway that you would like to convey to? people that are listening to the podcast as to why this research is, is so important and these guidelines are so critical for HD patients? Yes. So I would say the top uh, line takeaway that I would say is that um, aerobic exercise and strengthening, um, especially in the earliest stages of the disease, um, may have an effect on disease progression and improving functional outcomes in patients. And I think that incorporating that and thinking about exercise as a frontline intervention in the newly diagnosed and as early as possible, um, I think we can utilize exercise as, a, as an intervention alongside um, pharmacological interventions um, to potentially have a really powerful additive effect. So that would probably be my take home. Nora, how about you? I don't think I can top that. I think she said it all. <laughs> I think she said it all. All right. Well, again, this has been great. This is a topic, you know, that we haven't really covered yet um, with the podcast series. I think the guidelines are outstanding and they'll make a great addition to, you know, all the research that's being undertaken. And I, you know, I hope too that this, you know, just getting the word out helps foster interest in, in getting more of those uh, clinical trials up and started um, to help assess those those physical issues um, for you. Um, so again, you know, th thank you again. Uh, I really appreciate you, you joining us. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. Well, that concludes this latest episode of the HD Insights podcast. I can't thank Dr. Quinn and Dr. Fritz enough for setting aside time to speak about their role of physical therapy for those with HD and the clinical recommendations that are being published to guide physical therapy practice for Huntington disease. It was really great and especially convenient that we could get them on the podcast while they were both together attending the annual PT conference in Denver. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for your continued support for what we're doing on the podcast, and we certainly hope you enjoy the content that we're able to provide. If you've missed any episodes or would like a copy of each episode's transcript, please visit the Huntington Study Group's website at www.huntingtonstudygroup.org. We'll see you next time on the HD Insights Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. 
If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.